to Cycle for Your Life podcast show, uh, episode three, and I'm your host, Joe. Thank you for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed the last two if you've happened to listen to them. If not, have a listen. It's about my journeys on cycling. Um, I'm not an authority on it. Uh, I just like to talk about it and I like to blog about it. Uh, so if you've got a spare, you know, half an hour, hour, have a listen. Put it on the background whilst you're making something to eat or driving in your car or walking or running or whatever you do whilst listening to music in your ears or podcast shows. Today's show is um, the audio track from a film I did last year uh, about a guy's life. And this guy is John Merrill. John Merrill is today a interfaith minister and I came to meet John at a funeral of a family friend. And after the funeral, we went back to the wake at the house and John was there. And I sat down with him and I started talking. And I asked him, uh, you know, because I love asking questions, um, why you became an interfaith minister. And he told me all about it. And he's only been doing it for about four or five years. So uh, obviously I asked him what he'd done before. And the reply is truly amazing. John has walked 200, hold it, 290,000 miles. Yeah, that's right. 290,000 miles. He's worn out 133 pairs of boots and he's written over 440 books on the subject and published. You can go and buy these books today. John Merrill, The Marathon Walker. So obviously, uh, yeah, I said, you know, um, I started speaking to him. I was, you know, tell me all about your journeys. Tell me everything. You know, I was like, this is at a funeral, not the best place to speak about this sort of subject matter. So I said, look, you know, I'd love to uh, to film you because I, I do a bit of filming and documentary stuff in my spare time. And uh, I really wanted to get this on tape and for, for him to tell me his story. And this is the audio track um, from the film. It's still work in progress. So it's in its final stages now. But I thought I'd share uh, this with you uh, because it is truly uh, inspirational and uh, it really it resonates with me because it's about adventure um, and just doing getting on with it and, and enjoying life to the max and he really fills his life up it's uh, it's truly amazing and inspirational so uh, it's about an, an hour long so please enjoy put it in the background and listen to John's story thank you my name is uh, John uh, John Merrill uh, uh, well, since I started walking, the first long walk in, in 1970, in the next, since then, in the 46 years, I've walked uh, 216,000 miles on long walks. The average person in his lifetime does 75,000 miles, not including walks. So, and I'm still in the same knees and hips and and everything that I was born with. And I've never had any trouble uh, with any knee joints or hips or anything. Well, when I was uh, about 15, I had 300 books on the Himalayas. I had this huge collection of... Uh, so I was reading about Everest and Annapurna and Kokoi and Danapargat, all, all the major 8,000 metre peaks. And I did have these dreams that I would someday like to climb some of these mountains in, in real life, really. Well, I was born in London, uh, in Islington, but I was uh, adopted after nine months and taken to Sheffield. This is where I get my accent from. I'm a more northerner, really. I was living with my birth mother for nine months. It was there was a an uncle who was a solicitor in the family, and he he didn't want the stain on the family, so he was he was very instrumental in, in getting me adopted, and also was the the my grandmother. Uh, of course, I I knew none of this until. Uh, my adopted father, shortly before he died, he gave my gave me my adoption birth certificate, and from that number, I could then trace my 
history and who my natural parents were. But I never wanted him to know because I didn't want to upset him because they've just been brilliant and I could just cannot fault them at all. I, I just have the highest respect for them. But uh, it was, he died three months later after he gave me the certificate. And it was a four months, le years after that, that I actually, uh, papers were released to me from Islington and I could then learn the, my early story and that my birth name was Nigel Wilson and my adopted father had kept my Nigel as, his, as my middle name and, uh, uh, and I had, there was all the evidence that my mother wanted to keep me but and my uh, natural father he wanted to support me but uh, the family wouldn't have it at all so I never saw my he never saw me at all my natural father uh, and then I discovered that uh, my adopted me sorry my natural mother had died and on the, the death certificate there was a strange name who witnessed it. And I, so I wrote to her and I, and I said, I, according to my research, uh, she was my mother and uh, she wrote, well, within uh, half an hour of getting the letter from me, she rang me up and said, I was told when I was 17 that uh, my mother had a son and she was looking for you for 10 years, the last 10 years. But of course at the time in the 1990s all the doors were shut so they wouldn't release any information to her. Uh, and so she said, when are you coming to see me? So I said, well come next week because on the Monday all the papers on my father's side uh, were being released to me. And so I went down to see her in, in Milton Keynes and uh, I thought I'd just stay for half an hour, you know. And I was there for 12 hours. We just uh, got on ever so well. And, uh, and then she was married with four children, and they were married with children. So he suddenly became an uncle and a great uncle. And uh, it was quite a, a stepping stone, really. And I'm still, years later, I'm still struggling to come to terms with it, really. And then I did research on my uh, uh, natural father's side and I, there was a half-sister on that side as well and I've been in touch with her and stayed there and she's in South Wales and we got on ever so well and again I'm a, an uncle and a great uncle there. So it's, uh, uh, and so uh, my father had great trouble finding somewhere for me to to go to school in Sheffield because he asked me who the name was and, and of course he said oh John Merrill oh, we can't have him here so very fortuitous again he got me to a boarding school in Harrogate and although I was up bottom of the class uh, and struggling I uh, it was all great contrast on on sports day and at the age of 11 I went in for everything, 100 yards, 220, 440, the relay, the long jump and the high jump and I either won it or came second. Of course I was very shy and embarrassed really and instead of attending prize giving uh, I hid in the toilets and the headmaster found me one and a half hours later and presented me with a school cup and my father rushed off and got me to a photographer and uh, had my photograph taken because that was the only good thing I ever did at the school really. I did have two other records at the school because if you, if you did misbehave uh, your name was called out at assembly and you had to report to the headmaster's office and drop your trousers and have three whacks of the cane. If you were very bad you got six but I broke the record and had nine at one bending and by the time I left at the age, uh, <coughs> at 12 and a half, because I failed a common entrance exam, I'd had 76 whacks of the cane, which was another record. Uh, but again, it was uh, a lovely progression and very meant to be, really, that I, the Quaker uh, godmother suggested this Quaker boarding school in Weatherby, which for me was perfect. It was all out in the country. We had 70 acres of woodland and we'd saw trees down and put them through the sawmill. We built our own sewage works, as well as having all the normal academic studies as well. 
and uh, on a Sunday you could just go into the kitchens and write your name on the on the notice board, make some sandwiches, and you could disappear for the day as long as you were back for six o'clock in the evening. So you could just cycle or walk wherever you wanted to do. I used to walk sometimes to a little village called Cottingham, and I discovered that there was a woman there, and in a house she had one of the sledges that Robert Falcon Scott had used to. Uh, to go to the South Pole, then we became firm friends. I also used to cycle then to Armscliff Crag, which is a great stone outcrop, and the uh, I'd sit at the base of a climb, and I'd wait till someone dropped a rope down, and I'd tie on the rope, and then I'd climb up and do the climb, and that's how I learned to rock climb. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when I was, by the time I was 15, the headmaster caught me one day climbing up the school building and he shouted up my office now. And I thought I was in serious trouble because I'd, uh, he'd sent me home the previous term three weeks early. He says, I've had enough of you. But anyway, uh, I got in front of his desk and being Quakers, they don't smack you or cane you. They just give you a lecture. So I stood to attention in front of his desk and he just said, no, no, come and sit down in the chair. And he just uh, leant across and said, uh, I think you better be properly trained. And he got me off on an outward bound mountain course in Estale in the Lake District for a month. I wasn't even old enough. Uh, so I still don't know how they did it, but I just had this wonderful month walking in the mountains and running and, and doing more rock climbing and learning how to map read and camping. So f for me, it was uh, absolutely perfect. And uh, my father put my name down for an expedition to Norway. And six months later, I was one of 12 chosen out of some 360 or so. And uh, the following year, I went to Norway and and had a month, had a, was there for a better part of a month, and I had a week on the Hardanger Glacier, learning how to cross glaciers and test snow bridges and cutting steps in the ice and so on, and then climbed a few other mountains over the next weeks. And I got very friendly with the guide, and he said, oh, why don't we come back next year, and uh, I'll train you some more. And so I did go back the next year, I was on the Fitz Glacier again and more training. And then I had a month then in the Jutenhaven and climbed all the highest mountains in Norway and crossed 28 glaciers and climbed all the, the highest peaks and uh, did many first ascents. And I was supposed to go back the following year to get my guide certificate, but my father wouldn't let me go because I had to sit my O levels and I failed a lot. So. He wasn't very impressed, but, <coughs> but uh, when I walk round the <coughs> sorry, when I walk round the island of Mull, uh, I then wrote some articles and just sent them to different magazines, to outdoor magazines and the Lady and so on. And to my amazement, they were accepted. Uh, I just kept trying. That was all, and I did take English again uh, about eight months, eight years after leaving school and I got 93%. Yeah. And I did go back to the school and saw the English master five years after I'd left and I, I showed him uh, 20 books I'd written on the Peak District. And he went very quiet. <laughs> but uh... Well, I was very athletic. That's why I did pay attention in, in the classes, really, although I was taking it in. I can remember every class very, very clearly. Uh, but I was rebellious, uh, which I didn't really, well, I did at the time understand, although I didn't really question. My father did, uh, adoptive father did get me to a Harley Street specialist because he wanted to know whether I was normal. And I came out as quite a normal person with all the tests that were done. Uh, it's only in the last year that I've, now begin to understand why I was rebellious at school. And I read this book, uh, Primal Wound, and it's all about being adopted and what an effect it does have on, on the child, because he knows he's not with his birth mother. He could smell, and the smell that he's not with his birth mother, and that's why he rebels. And that's why I, I rebelled. 
Costanova at, at the school. Uh, well, I didn't know for, until I was 13 that I was adopted, so uh, uh, but I never found it a, a stigma or a stumbling block, really. After 18 months, I, uh, accountants, I quite enjoyed it, uh, but uh, I thought there was more to it, and I, my father said he was very busy at work, and I said, why can't I work there? So he said, yes, all right then. And so I, I w went to his factory and started making the tea to start with. And, and then he sweeped the shop floor and, and then he started training me to use the lathe. So I had done metal work at school, so I had done working on machines and drilling machines. So I started do, doing those. And, and then onto the fitting bench and the assembly line for his, because he designed his own chemical pump. Um, which sold all over the world. He painted it all over the world. Uh, it's just a very simple idea that there were a rubber tube with a valve at either end encased in a metal casing and surrounded by oil. And when the piston came down, it compressed the tube from round to oval. So you're forcing liquid through. And so you could pump any chemical because you could get any rubber to suit whatever acid or whatever slurry or whatever dangerous material you wanted. And so he, he he marketed them and sold them all over the world to, to atomic power stations and British Rail and ICI and all the chemical factories and everything. But he also had a chemical business as well, making chemicals under license from America, which he then sold to Bahrain and the uh, Arab states and all over Britain as well. Uh, so I. I started working my way through the shop floor and, and then uh, the storekeeper left so he said oh you may as well take the stores over so I took over the stores and did all the buying and selling and, and, and piecing all the components ready to make up the next pump and, and so on and send all the spares out for uh, by post or whatever I used to deliver them as well uh, in the lorry uh, and then uh, he, the works manager left and he said, uh, said, oh, you may as well do that then. So I became works manager for a while. But he had a great problem, really, because he, he'd built the whole business up and he could not release uh, the, the control over it. So he'd give you the job, but then three months, sorry, three weeks later, he, he brings a qualified works manager in and I was had to go back to the stores and do other work and he did that about five times uh, which I uh, wasn't very happy with in the end because the men on the shop floor they said you do a much better bed job than uh, these highly qualified uh, works managers so but anyway yeah and it was uh uh, in the early days there, I got friendly with one of the, the secretaries and uh, and like history was repeating itself, uh, I got her pregnant and uh, uh, because at school we were, in the final week at school, we went away camping in the, in the Lake District and the headmaster who'd wrote a book on, on sex, he called it He and She and it was a best-selling book. And we were supposed to be learned about the birds and the bees. But unfortunately, one of them was lost in the mountains. I was detailed to go and find him and bring him back to the campsite. So I missed all this birds and the bees. So I didn't know anything about condoms or anything, really. Uh, and so, uh, so I got her pregnant, anyway. Uh, and she didn't know anything about condoms either. You know, we, we just bought a packet in the end after the event and, and sat in the car and, and undid it to learn <laughs> what it was for, really. But uh, I went to see my father. I was very, very close to him. I could talk to him about anything. And I told him, and uh, he said, do you want to marry her? I said, yes, well, I love her. He says, well, you know, if you don't, or if you don't want to, uh, you can go go to the Alps and I'll pay you and, uh, until it's all washed over and then you can come back again. So he, he would have supported me had I decided 
go to the Alps and, and rock climb. But uh, no, I, I felt my duty was there with, with her, really. So we got married. Uh, and of course, I was still out climbing every day, every weekend with the climbing club and three nights a week during, uh, in the Peak District. Of course, I didn't know. Uh, she was flirting around with several men, really. And uh, and in the end, I came back to the house one one day and she said, I'm leaving in the morning. And she ran off with my climbing partner after five months, after five years. And I had a daughter and a son. So I told my father when I got to work. He took me out to lunch and you know, we just had a little chat. Uh, and then when I got back to the house after the furniture was gone and uh, she'd moved out. Uh, uh, so I was in a state of shock really, uh, uncomfortable. Uh, we had to go to court to have a divorce because uh, I had the grounds that uh, she'd been unfaithful and of course we went off with her best friend. Uh, so we did, uh, because my father got a detective on, on the scene, so he, he, for three weeks, he monitored all the movements so he could prove conclusively in court that what had been going off. Uh, so there was no settlement. I just had to pay for the children, that was all. Uh, and it wasn't till uh, I was going through my father's papers after he died that, that I discovered he was still seeing what were his grandchildren, really. And they were photographing of my daughter at the age of 17, you know. And he never told me, I never knew. But I have uh, subsequently uh, was, was advised that I should try and make contact. And I, I do know where they are and I have written to them, uh, but uh, they never responded. Well, after the divorce and everything, uh, about a year later, I did meet another girl at a dance hall in Sheffield. Uh, uh, she was from Worksop. We went out together for four years. Uh, the, the mother was very keen on me. She, uh, uh, she thought it was a perfect match, but uh, in the end, she, she called it a day because she didn't think, uh, she couldn't see a life of, uh, of me doing all these walks and writing books, you didn't see, think it would be a very financially rewarding. Uh, so we parted company eventually. Uh, yes, well, on the coast, walk around Britain, uh, I was also raising money for the Royal Commonwealth Society for the Blind. But it wasn't a charity walk, but I wanted to raise some money. I did, did in the end raise 45,000 for the blind. Uh, but it was, uh, I had to restrict it because it was encroaching on the walk because people would turn up and saying, oh, I'm sponsored to walk with it for five miles and then they'd disappear and then someone else would appear. Of course, I knew nothing about this and it just got out of control, really, so I had to put a stop to it, really. So I was involved with the one who was in control of England and Wales, and then there was a separate office for who was in control of the Scottish office. And uh, as I got near to Scotland, I was getting in touch with her. Uh, so she knew exactly where I was, and, and she told me one or two things that were happening, such as when I got to the Scottish border, the junior world champion would be piping me across the border into Scotland and so on. So I got uh, into Scotland and as I came round the point of air I had stabbing pain in my right foot. And I'd done over 3,000 miles by that time and uh, I just thought I twisted it because it swelled up but I was uh, one and a half days ahead of schedule so I thought I'll just rest, rest my foot for a day which I did, and I ran round the campsite at that night, and there was no pain, and there wasn't any swelling at all. Anyway, so I carried on the next day, and I eventually got to uh, Culane Castle, 
and they came out and met me and they said any problems. I said, oh, my right foot's a bit painful, so they strapped me up, uh, which made it worse, actually. And then I, I carried on around to uh, Ardrossan and uh, I went out with uh, We Are The Champions, this BBC television programme. They raced, raced down to me and said, if you can walk a bit quickly, uh, we were all in the swimming pool with 800 school children and I'd love you to walk on the programme. So I speeded up and walked on the programme and, and did that and then walked out again and back into the quiet and solitude. Great contrast really. And then I came round into Port Glasgow and Blacks of Greenock had made the tent to my design for the walk. And so they met me there and uh, I went to see the factory and meet everyone and the, the director says, any trouble, any anything, any any problems? I said, well, I just got a bit of pain in my right foot. And so he said, uh, well, while you're here, uh, we have all the medical facilities, we'll have it looked at. So I went down and they x-rayed my foot and, and uh, they told me I had a stress fracture. I'd walked too much. And for 300 miles I've been walking on it and the bone was getting wider and wider apart. And they said, if you go any further you're going to do permanent damage, so you'll have to be in plaster and be incapacitated. So I accepted that and I said, well, I'll stay where I am. I won't go home or anything. I always said if anything happened I'd stay on the coast and uh, get over it and then carry on. And so I contacted the Scottish secretary who lived nearby and said, oh, come and stay here. And uh, so I stayed there. And, uh, and so we became firm friends then. <laughs> and I went off and gave talks while I was there. And, uh, and after a, a month, uh, uh, the plaster came off and the specialist says, uh, well, in about three months' time, you're meant to set off on the walk again. Just go and do a little walk, a mile a day or something. And I thought, no, I'm not having that. So I climbed every day a different Monroe. And after a week, I went back in to see the specialist. And he said, you're walking well. I said, yes, sir. I'm off to, in the morning. And I set off and continued the coast walk and was doing 17 miles a day to start with. And I gradually built my foot back up into walking order and uh, completely healed it on my own, really, by doing the walks. Uh, uh, and so she was kept visiting me in different areas as I came round the coast. And then she, another piper piped me across at Berwick-on-Von-Tweed back into England. And, and then I left her and carried on then down to... Uh, to London, uh, but by that time we were very close really. And, uh, uh, so after the coast walk, uh, and after a week on television and doing all sorts of things, we went to the west coast of Ireland for a holiday and, uh, and then uh, she drove back to Scotland and dropped me off in Manchester and I walked home to the Peak District to a, a civic reception which I didn't know. That they were, all telephoning ahead that he's passed through our village. And, and then when I got to my own village, there was the Lord Lieutenant and everyone. But we kept it very, very quiet. Uh, and uh, we got married the following year then. So we had all the headlines, you know, he went for a walk and found a wife, you know. So, it, uh, well, the first, well, I went to the uh, island of Arran with the climbing club I was in and I walked around the island and as well as climbing up all the high mountains and did a lot of rock climbs and the following year I thought where shall I go for the two weeks holiday and I thought there's the island of Mull uh, which is one of the biggest islands of the Hebrides and I thought if I walk all the way around that and take photographs I could then make them into a lecture and I also could write, hopefully, some stories as a result of the walk. Uh, and so I set off the following year and I walked about 250 miles. And it was on that walk that I uh, 
came into my mind, why don't I do a longer walk of a thousand miles continuously without a rest day and join all the inner and outer Hebrides together in one continuous walk. And so the following year I set off from the Isle of Arran and 54 days later I'd linked all the islands of the inner and outer Hebrides together and it only rained once, which was quite remarkable. Yeah. And I just got on the ferry to go in between the different islands. Uh, so I went on from Arrow and I and then went across onto the uh, Mull of Kintyre and then onto Gear and then onto uh, onto other islands like Mull of course and, and then onto Currency, Tyree and the Outer Hebrides and all the way up to the butt of Lewis and then down the other side so I could catch the, the ferry and then across to the Isle of Skye and then went on the final islands of uh, of Cano and Muck and Egg. Uh, so I just carried everything on my back and uh, camped out virtually every night. Uh, <clears throat> I had to get permission in one or two places like on the island of Colonsey. I had to write to Lord Strathcona and get permission and he says yes you can by all means camp on the old golf course and that's where I camped and had a driftwood fire for two nights. Well I linked it with the ferries and found out the ferry times to the different islands and then I worked it out as a continuous walk. It took me about two months looking on uh, about 80 different ordnance survey maps because I would walk right round each island as well as climbing all the highest mountains on each island. So it took me about two months uh, and every two weeks I would stop at a post office and there would be a parcel waiting with all the maps I would need for the next two weeks. So I didn't have to carry all the 80 maps in one go and, and as I walked off a map I, I sent it back home then. And also I had film waiting, so because I, I took about uh, 2,000 colour slides and black and white photographs. Uh, yeah, my first long walk, uh, the previous one had been on the Isle of Mull of 250 miles, but no, this was the first 1,000 mile walk. Because uh, I was, uh, not only did I experience this on the, uh, on the Bell Hang in the Rivlin Valley and that sense of freedom, I also liked marathon running. Uh, and I, I thought, well, running is not so good for you, uh, whereas walking is a more natural pace and it gives you time to explore as well. So that's why I went into walking, really. And I thought it's a challenge to, to walk a thousand or more miles in, without a rest day. Well, having got back from the uh, Hebrides, I started looking on the map and I thought, where else is there? And I thought, there's all these other islands in the Orkneys and the Shetlands. And so I, I worked out a similar walk uh, of about a thousand miles to link all the islands of the Orkneys and the Shetlands and also go to Fair Isle, which is in between the both main blocks of islands. And I would go all the way up to the, to the top of uh, Muckle Flagger at the top of, uh, of the mall. So I would... Uh, it was quite, uh, when I got through uh, all the way up into the Shetlands and, and I'd done about 840 miles and, and you realise you only had 160 to go and that uh, get a little bit depressed really because you've been planning it for months and now you're walking it and, and you know sooner or later you're going to have to stop and, and then readjust back to uh, modern life and, and not be camping out every day and wearing the boots and the shorts and and carrying 40-odd pounds on your back. Well, since I started walking, the first long walk in, in 1970, in the next, since then, in the 46 years, I've walked uh, 216,000 miles on long walks. The average person in his lifetime does 75,000 miles, not including walks. So and I'm still in the same knees and hips and, and everything that I was born with and I've never had any trouble uh, with any knee joints or hips or anything. But the walks uh, after the Orkneys and the Shetlands 
I decided that uh, I should walk 1500 miles without a rest day and so I walked the whole of the west coast of Ireland and did just short of 1600 miles and it was a, a absolutely stunning walk although it rained every day but you they call it soft rain so it's uh, but I got onto the all the islands as well it was a remarkable walk really and on that walk I thought uh, towards the end why don't I walk all the way around the coast of Britain and I thought about it and then I dismissed it I thought no it's too far so the next long walk was uh, two, over 2,000 miles and I linked at the time all the 10 national parks together and did all the major walks like Offa's Dyke and the Pennine Way and the Two Moors Way and the, the Cleveland Way and I did 2,043 miles and got to Filey and in the final three days I decided that the, I'd walk the coast of Britain and so all the press were there and they were all asking what next and I said well the coast of Britain in 18 months time and that was just short of 7,000 miles basically. Well I decided, having done the walk through, through England and Wales I did announce that I was going to do the coastline in 18 months time because I knew I would start the new year sort of like January the 1st and, set off and do the walk that was my initial thought uh, I just had four hours sleeping finally and then I walked home to the P district uh, 176 miles to sort of think about it really and calm down from the the walk in, in England and Wales and then it took me uh, three months of planning just looking on maps to start with over about 240 maps that cover the whole of the coast of Britain and I made up rules that uh, in England and Wales I'd use the nearest right of way to the coast be it a road or footpath if the tide's out you can walk beneath high tide mark legally that's quite acceptable and also in Scotland you can walk anywhere once if you walk it again you'll be trespassing so you could hug the coastline even more fully in Scotland but I also decided that I would not take any motorway bridge and I would not take any ferry I'd walk up the estuaries and then walk down the other side so that's why I added another thousand miles to the walk because I wrote to the Ordnance Survey and I said uh, according to my calculations the entire coastline of Britain is 6,160 miles and about six months later they wrote back and said we agree with your figure but I did 7,000 miles because uh, if you know Bournemouth and Poole Harbour it's only half a mile across the Stutland but on foot round Poole Harbour is 56 miles the worst one was the uh, when you came down to Spurn Head and you looked across the mouth of the Humber to Grimsby, four miles away. To actually get to Grimsby from Spurhead on foot is 186 miles. So that's why I did this other thousand miles. But I felt it should all be done on foot and not to take any other form of transport. But I also decided, I walked, worked it clockwise and you had worked it out, I'd set off from St Paul's Cathedral in London at the beginning of January and then walk clockwise because if you walk anti-clockwise that's the devil's way and it, uh, by setting off at the beginning of January I would then reach the southwest peninsula and Cornwall in mid-February which in theory is the mildest part of the country at that time of the year and it's 1100 miles to John to uh, Land's End and there I literally would turn right and it was 4,000 miles to Cape Roth in the northwest tip before I turned right again for John O'Groats and, and then down the east coast back to London but of course when I got down to uh, the Lizard and uh, Land's End the whole area was hit by the, uh, the worst snowfall for 25 years and the whole thing was cut off and it even went out on the news that I was lost 
I was fine. I was in Boscastle in this pub with a roaring log fire and, and eating steak in the evening. Yeah, so, so I lost the day. Well, I made it up, but uh, I just had to sit out the storm. And, and then the next day I was walking through 12 foot snow drifts to get to Bude, which took me 12 hours. I would do one, one major walk a year, but I would do a lot of other walks as well. While I was planning the coast walk, uh, I did a 1600 mile land then to John O'Groats walk, because I felt psychologically I should have walked between the two extremities of Britain really. Uh, but I also did other walks, like I did a 450 mile walk from Norwich Cathedral via Ely, Peterborough, Lincoln, York, uh, to Durham Cathedral, linked all the eastern cathedrals together. And the, just before the coast walk, I, I walked the Pilgrim's Way from Winchester Cathedral to Canterbury Cathedral, and that was uh, only about 200 miles, just to limber up, ready for the coast. Yeah. Well, having planned the whole walk on, on the complete schedule, I, I did give the Lord Mayor of London my predicted date back into London, and I did get back on that day. Yeah. But. Uh, as I came round the coast, every two weeks I had a food parcel waiting for with dehydrated food for seven days and all the maps I would need for the next two weeks and all the film and uh, clean pairs of socks. Uh, but I basically carried everything on my back. Uh, but of course, from past experience, in those days, a traditional heavyweight boot would last to about 2,000 to 2,500 miles on a big walk. So I had to break in four pairs of boots before I set off on the coast. Uh, so to do that, uh, I got a brand new pair of boots and then got to Edale and walked up the Pennine Way 270 odd miles to Kirk Yetham. And those boots were then put on the shelf ready for the coast walk. And then Two or three weeks later, another pair of new boots, and I'd walk up the Pennine Way again. So I did it four times, in, just in breaking in boots, really, that year, that summer. Well, the old traditional heavyweight boot uh, would need 500 miles to break them in, so they felt like slippers. Uh, today's modern uh, lightweight boots, if I get a thousand miles out of them, I've done well, and you don't really need much breaking in at all but they're not as strong or as sturdy as the traditional boots. But now I've worn out 126 pairs of boots. So I could have bought a car instead of the boots, really. <laughs> well, I've walked, well, I've walked a bit in Africa, only in Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, I'd like to go more. I often thought about walking the Rift Valley. That's always been on the list somehow. Uh, I always want to go down to South Africa as well. That's another. Uh, that's the only trouble, every time you go for a walk you discover all the other ones. Well, I've walked all over Europe, I've done a 3,000 mile walk right across Europe and all the Alps and all the Pyrenees. And, uh, I've walked in Hong Kong and other parts of Asia, which is another amazing place really. You think Hong Kong is all the skyscrapers, but just away from that you've got incredible sandy beaches and beautiful countryside and amazing people, uh, as friendly as could be, really. Uh, you never hear any noise of any traffic or honking of a horn or anything. Everyone is so at peace that they, uh, they just say, oh, just walk, just wave you across. And don't, no one behind is honking a horn because you're holding the traffic up there. Well, she lived in Scotland and I had a house, but uh, I decided that uh, I thought I should have a shop selling outdoor equipment in the Peak District. And uh, so she came down, we got a flat and we opened the shop and it was very successful for two years. And then the accountant says, your figures don't make sense. Uh, and he worked it out that the staff we were employing were helping themselves to the till. You'd buy, sell a pair of boots at £45 and they'd ring up 35 so they were pocking the 20 and, and we'd lost 20000 like that. Uh, 
and then the mortgage on the property was not legal. The solicitor had done it all wrong, as we discovered, because we had to wind the business up in the end. But we did get all the money back eventually, because it went to court. Anyway, we, we lived quite happily, and she was totally supportive, and I went off and did other walks in different parts of the world. Uh, walked across America and so on. And, and uh, But we did have a tragedy. Uh, she had two children. One was uh, a manic depression, and he didn't really get on with me and always wanted to be back in Scotland. Uh, although we said, you know, we, we'll support you whatever you do, but that, uh, it wasn't enough. Uh, and she had a daughter who was a nurse. And at 10 o'clock one night, about uh, half past 10, there was a knock on the door and I answered the door and there were two policemen there. And they told us that the daughter had been killed in a car crash. She was waiting at a traffic lights on red and a drunken driver came along and smashed into the Mini and the, the two nurses that were inside were killed instantly. So she was in a real state. Uh, and she never got over it. Yeah. And eventually she decided that she would move back to Scotland and, and be with her son because that was the only child that she got really so so we had to part company uh, uh. so it was all very difficult at that time because at the same time if me adopted father died and I had all his estate to sort out which took seven years and so the divorce took seven years uh, uh. After Sheila, I uh, I thought I should uh, have a, a secretary to help with all the work that I got. <coughs> so I advertised for secretary, and uh, a week later, this woman from the next village came, and so she started working for me. And for the first three years, we, we rarely spoke really. She just got on with the work and I got on with mine. And then, and then slowly we, we, we fell in love. And, uh, and we were together basically for 20 years. And it was, and she was highly supportive. And said, go, yeah, go to the Buddhist monastery, no problem. You know. Uh, go and do that walk to Santiago de Compostela or go to Canada and do the Tarbert Trail or whatever or walk round the Ohio. She was always 100% behind me and she looked after the business as well. So, uh, so uh, but she did, uh, she did suffer from arthritis a bit and one leg was shorter than the other two and a half inches. Uh, at the age of 14, she uh, had to have her, all her hip and all the bones uh, sealed as one. Uh, but it never uh, hindered her at all. She lived a normal life, basically, uh, and even had two sons. Uh, not by me, but with a, a previous husband. and. Uh, but after, uh, after being together for nearly 20 years, she woke me at four o'clock one morning and she says, I'm going. I said, pardon? I said, I'm going. I said, well, what can I do? And she said, uh, I just like a glass of water. So I fetched her a glass of water and she drank it. And said, oh, I feel much better. So I was shaking, but I took the glass back into the bathroom and I just dropped it on the floor. So I had to sweep it all up because I smashed it. And then got back into bed and, uh, and she said, oh, I feel much better. And we just fell asleep. And at half past seven, I got up and uh, went downstairs to do my half an hour's meditation. And 
eight o'clock I made her a cup of tea and went upstairs and she sat up in bed and was drinking the tea. And for some unknown reason I looked out of the window, I opened the curtains and looked out and flower pots that were in the garden with rhododendrons, with rhododendrons in were now on the other side of the road. And, I, and flowers that we'd put in two weeks ago were all now uprooted. So I'd never been disturbed in the last 15 years we'd been there. And uh, I just said to her, uh, uh, I'd just go and fetch them in. So I went out and brought them all in, back into the garden. And I'd only gone about four minutes, went into the house and I could hear music. And I thought, oh, she's put the radio on, which is not like her. But anyway, uh, I walked upstairs and walked into the bedroom and she was dead on the floor. And the radio wasn't on. What I'd heard was the angels, most definitely. And I'm convinced that the whole of the garden had been disturbed, so I wouldn't see her get out of bed and die. She had a, as we discovered later, she had a plumery embolism. Uh, when I gave her the kiss of life, I, I, the paramedics were there in three minutes and I was putting the defibrillator on and everything. But it was no good. It was just uh, an embolism. It's just like a light switch. You know, that was it. And then came the bad bit because I'd never married her. And she said, I don't want to get married because why spoil what's not broken? You know? uh, but I never realised that a partner has no rights. So I went with the eldest son to register her death and I wasn't even allowed to witness it. Which, that was very hard. And then I, I went, the following day I went for a walk, which I planned to do, and I ate the sandwiches that she'd made for me to, that I would have been had on the Saturday. But, and I did the walk on the Sunday and uh, I'd worked the whole funeral out. And we'd carry the coffin in and I'd say the tribute and, and everything. And I went back to see the two sons and told them and they said, yeah, that's fine. And so we uh, did the whole funeral a few days later and uh, went to the wake afterwards and everything was quite happy. And then later that day, I had a phone call from the eldest son and I said, oh, could you come on Monday, Monday evening? I'd like to have a word with you. So I went round on the Monday evening and he said, I want you out of the house by Sunday. Of course, me as a partner, I had no rights. So I never said anything. I was furious, but I never said anything. I just turned down turned round and walked out the house and got got in the car and drove back to the house and told my sister in Milton Keynes and they came up and helped me empty the house and clean it and uh, I went down there for, for the weekend and I was out of the house and I've never seen them again, never heard from them. Well I did get a flat uh, uh, I just I just sat there and I, on the floor and uh, totally at sea with myself and I I did paint it and tidy it up and uh, and I carried on with the business but I was just a, a wreck I totally went to pieces and after nine months I gave everything up and just got a skip and just chucked loads of stuff away uh, I just couldn't handle it really. It's, uh, uh, and, and then I, uh, in another year or so, I thought, well, I must have a holiday. I can't really be around at Christmas, you know. Uh, so I went away on holiday and uh, went for two weeks. I was walking on the island of Minorca, and then it came to Christmas Day, so I had to stay in. And, uh, and uh, I met. Uh, Jean there, and her husband had died, and, uh, and we, we got on very well, and uh, I sort of latched on to her, the first real friend, as it were, for 
after all the, what had happened. And eventually she said, oh, why don't you come down here? So, so I did and just start, picked up life again. And I went out walking again, writing books. And, and then I started to pick up writing again and, and start writing books on walks. And that slowly got, came full circle back again, really. So. Well, like on the Hebrides, I, I took a lot of photographs and I got onto a lecture agency when I was back home. And I then started going round uh, libraries and, and lecture clubs all over Britain just talking about, I called it Hebridean Journey. So that brought in uh, the income to finance the next walk. But it also, I wrote a book on it, which eventually came out from Aaron to Orkney, which described both the Hebrides and the Orkneys and Shetland walks in, in one book, over two and a half thousand miles of walking. Well, when it was... Uh, Planning the, the the walk in the Hebrides, I was living in the Peak District, and I thought there's not really a book on walking in in Derbyshire, so I thought I'll write one. So I wrote fifty walks in a book, and I never published before, and uh, I sent it to the first publisher I could think of, and uh, to my amazement, they accepted it. And it sold, it came out the following year, and it sold 9,000 copies. And then they said, we're not going to reprint it again. And I said, well, it's got 50 walks in. Half of them are short walks for the motorists of three to five miles long. And the others are long walks for the rambler, about 10 or 12 miles long. It says, why can't we split it into two books? And they said, oh, that's a good idea. And so the short walks for the motorists sold 95,000 copies and the long walks for the rambler sold 65,000 copies. So uh, I was really uh, on my way, really. Well, I've always been very spiritual from all the things that have happened in my life and, and all the walks and the people I've met and, and things that have happened, uh, even with... Uh, Jennifer, she was telling me to go to the Buddhist monastery and I was there for four years. Uh, she was very spiritual. Uh, I said, well, last Christmas, I said, what do you want for Christmas? And she said, I'd just like a Bible. So I bought her a new Bible. She never read it, but it was on the, beside her bed. Uh, so really she'd be overjoyed at what I'm doing now. It was uh, when I got nearing 65, a voice in me said it's time I spoke about my spirituality and, and some of the things that have happened. And two days later, the Kindred Spirit magazine arrived and I was looking through it and they had a competition. So I thought I'll write 900 words on, on some of the aspects of my life and some of the experiences. And to my amazement, two months later, I'd won a prize and a book, and they printed the article. Uh, and I think in the next issue, which was about a couple of days after that, uh, there was this advert for the Interfaith Foundation, trained to be spiritual counsellors and interfaith ministers. And the name Interfaith just rang a bell. I thought, that's it. That's so I got in touch and went to the open day in Notting Hill in London. And before I even got to the church there, I just knew I was going to do it. And I sat in a circle with everyone and then the microphone came round. And for the first time, I'd actually have to talk about it. So I was a, quite a bag of nerves, really, but it went all right. And then afterwards, I saw the head of faculty and, and I said, well, you know, I've failed everything at school and I've no qualifications, but I'd like to do the course. Is it possible? And she, she just said, of course, we're just honoured to have you. So I was quite stunned, really. And then it was a very intense two years of learning about the different faiths, which I already had quite a bit of background from, 
and then shadowing different aspects and then writing essays and visiting temples and churches and and then meeting your mentor regularly and you had your own study group uh, so it was very intense and then you went on retreats as well and, and then the second year we were doing all, all the uh, services, weddings, funerals and everything. And I followed, I shadowed uh, funerals and I thought, having done Jennifer's I thought, and my father's, I thought I had a, an insight into it. And so I went to Enfield Crematorium and I said, uh, could I make arrangements to see the whole process? Uh, and they said, nice, come on now. And they took me down and I put, pushed the coffin into, into the oven and everything. And then they took me into the chapel and said, well, the next time we'll see you, will be in your robes. And I thought, I don't think so. <laughs> but anyway, it's, uh, I've done about 200 funerals there now. But, but anyway, uh, and then in the final days in the seminary, uh, we... Uh, we all had to do a demonstration of a, a different service. So I gave, did a funeral, I was, did the last uh, demonstration and uh, the head of faculty came up afterwards and said, just go and do it. If you, you've given us a great lesson. Uh, so once I was ordained, I went round the uh, funeral directors in the area and introduced myself and it was, uh, Three months later, before one rang, and I went and did my first funeral. My knees were shaking like mad. We couldn't see it because I was behind the screen. But, but uh, and they had told us a lot of things as well. So he quickly had a steep learning curve in some of the things he had to do. But anyway, it went all right. They were very happy. And the first year I did eight funerals. The second year I did 24. Uh, the next year I got to uh, 42, I think it was, and last year I did 80, and this year I've done 34 already in, in not even three months. Your name just gets passed around and uh, I get different funeral directors ringing up. They said, oh, you've been highly recommended, can you do this service? And so on, so yeah. which is very nice, you know. Uh, I get in trouble because I don't really turn them down. Because, uh, I sometimes get a bit almost overloaded, but then I think if you're asked, you should do your utmost to do it. Uh, but, uh, I just enjoy meeting the families and creating the service and f as much as possible to their fitting for the person who's deceased. Uh, yes, I've always been very spiritual, but I, I never never really looked into it or thought about it too much. I, uh, I always went to church and every village I went to, one of the first things I'd do would be to go and look in the church. Uh, so it was always there. Even the first book I wrote, the cover is a picture of a church. Uh, so I always had this deep spiritual understanding and appreciation and, uh, and I, before I even went to the seminary, I was doing pilgrimages all over the place. I mean, even in 1977, before the Coast Walk, it was a pilgrimage walk from Winchester to Canterbury Cathedral. So it's always been there, but not only now is it being released and I'm being talking about it. Uh, I mean, now I've written a book on uh, walking from London to Canterbury. Uh, which has just amazed me lately because copies have gone to uh, Switzerland, France, Germany, as well as all over England and Scotland. One's gone to Singapore and Australia. It just amazed me. Just lately, nearly every day, I've had an order for that book. Uh, but my father then he didn't really speak to me for two years. Uh, although I was the only son, adopted son, uh, had no qualifications, which he found a stumbling block because he had every qualification you could think of, a mechanical engineer and Bachelor of Science and, and everything, but uh, I had nothing. But uh, uh, 
but we after two years when I did this walk uh, all the way through the uh, Ted National Park in England and Wales and I walked home then from Filey to the Peak District to start thinking about walking around the coast of Britain and it's a true story as I came towards Bakewell at about half past nine in the morning a car was coming up this little lane and it was my father and it was never planned he got out and shook me by the hand and uh, he basically said you've done the right thing and he said come for tea on Sunday and then we were, we were firm friends from then onwards. But he never really told me to, to my face really. It was uh, when he passed away and I was sorting through his desk and, and clothes I found his wallet and there in his wallet were all these press cuttings of walks that I'd done and he would show them to people. People told me he used, he used to show them to everyone. But he never told me to her face. And I found the files of that he kept all the press cuttings and every copy of a book I'd sent him, he kept them in these files and, uh, and had a whole shelf full in his office. <laughs>